Well, good morning again. If you've got your Bibles there, open to Exodus chapter 33. So, when you think of Moses, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Long white beard, the Red Sea. Ten Commandments, the law, yeah, okay. So, humility, okay. So, for me, it's kind of like I associate Moses with the law, and it says, the law came through Moses and brought death, but grace and truth came through Jesus. And so you think of Moses as this really hard guy who's just really legalistic and, you know, God would use a legalistic hard guy to bring the law in, but actually, that's not the truth. As we read about Moses, Moses is a really humble guy, but he's also a really loving guy. And Moses actually predicts that God will send you a prophet like me, talking about Jesus. And Jesus, as we know, is full of love. He is love. And Moses was also a very loving person. So I just want to, before we jump into chapter 33, just talk a bit about Moses and this attribute of his character and his life, which was agape love. So the big picture is that last week in Exodus 32, we saw Moses as a mediator. This week in Exodus chapter 33, we'll see him as an intercessor. And next week, we'll see him as a worshiper. That's kind of how these three chapters fit together. Now, last week in Exodus chapter 32, we talked about how the Israelites disobeyed God by making a golden calf, the bull calf that the Egyptians had. And the highlight, at least for me, was Moses mediating for the people, demonstrating who he was, demonstrating that he was a man who loved others so much that he was willing, like Paul, to give up his own eternal salvation in order to save those he loved. And this is what happens when you spend time in God's presence, like Moses did, when we are prepared to wait on him and for him. So I would like to start this week by using Moses as a practical example of God's agape love in God's people as they are empowered by the Holy Spirit. So, our first few verses for this morning are Galatians 5.22, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, and you know the rest of it. thing there, it's the Holy Spirit produces. Acts 1.8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. And then in John 13, 34 to 35, so now I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. That's how we witness for Christ, is by loving one another. And Jesus goes on, he says in John 15, 9 to 14, I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain, continue or abide. In my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. This is my commandment love each other in the same way I have loved you. That's a really amazing um, statement there. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love. How did Jesus love us? Well, verse 13, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. 
you're my friends if you do what I command. So how did Jesus love? He loved sacrificially. He esteemed our needs as more important than his own. And that's in Philippians chapter 2, 3 and 4. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, last week we saw Moses doing that. But let's turn to Christ for a sec. Think of Christ who laid down his life for us, demonstrating agape or unconditional love. Now the question is, what was going on in his heart? What do you think was going on in his heart? Well, it says there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And Jesus spoke in that verse beforehand about joy. You could also say there is no greater joy than to lay down one's life for one's friends. So we think of sacrifice as being difficult and burdensome, but when you've got God's agape love, it becomes a pleasure. Loving with God's agape love completely changes the way we think. It changes our perspective. And just to highlight that, Hebrews 12, 2-3, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honour beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people, then you won't become weary and give up. So, it's not about grudging obedience. Can you imagine Jesus saying, Oh, these filthy sinners, why should I have to die for them? They all deserve to rotten hell. I'm only dying on the cross for them because I have to, because the right thing to do is to submit to the Father. That's grudging obedience. For us, grudging obedience might sound like, yes, I know, God says I need to put others before myself, so I'll let that person go first. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Okay, that's grudging obedience. And this is an attitude that comes from our sinful nature. It's called legalism. It's doing things because we think we have to. In contrast, with God's agape love, putting others' needs ahead of our own becomes a source of joy. It's something we do because we want to. Now, as Jesus endured much hostility from the people, Moses also endured so much hostility from the people. And in many ways, Moses is a type or picture of Jesus. He, Moses was rejected the first time, like Jesus was. His leadership was repeatedly challenged. He was continually unappreciated. He was misrepresented, misunderstood. And he could say like Paul, 2 Corinthians 12.15, And I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. And that's a powerful verse. That's an insight into Paul's heart. And I imagine that Jesus felt like this, especially when the disciples were walking along the road arguing about who was the greatest. Remember that passage in the New Testament? Who's the greatest? And they're forgetting completely about humility and about love. Or what about when he was betrayed and abandoned by his closest friends in the garden and they couldn't even pray with him? So if we are going to love and witness to a lost world, then obviously this is what we can expect too. We shouldn't expect our love to be returned 
or appreciated. Unfortunately, because we all have a sinful nature, there are times when this will also be true in our marriage, between our friends, our church, in within our church, our children, and our families. So what are we going to do? Love them with our natural conditional love or friendship love? And when we reach the end of ourselves, give up on them? Imagine if Moses did that. <laughs> He'd be out of there. How many times have you heard a Christian marriage end with the words, I just don't love them anymore? Or it was just too hard? Or we just didn't get along? This is a marriage based on conditional love. So is there another way? There's so many Christian marriages breaking down these days. It shouldn't be happening because we have this agape love available to us. But unfortunately, many people are not taking advantage of it. They're not asking God for it. They're not submitting themselves to the Lord to receive it. So is there another way that we can live? Well, yes. We recognize that the source of God's agape or unconditional love is the Holy Spirit, where we can continue to love and love and love regardless of whether people love us in return. And this is what the world needs most of all. But most importantly, I think, this is what the church needs most of all, is God's agape love flowing through us, demonstrating that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. So what is conditional love? Well, there's a verse that helps me to understand it. Conditional love, or the love that we have as a part of our sinful nature, could be described by Luke 6.32. If you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners or unbelievers love those who love them. So God's agape love goes beyond the love that this world has. Conditional love loves when it gets something in return. Agape love can be defined with the following verses, and you know these ones. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Now, I highlighted those bits in bold because they apply particularly to Moses. <laughs> he kept no record of being wronged, he never gave up, and he endured through every circumstance. And most of the time, not all the time, Moses did fail a few times, but most of the time, if you went through the Old Testament, you could put Moses' name in there and it would fit. So what about us? What about me? What about you? Are we living a life full of God's agape love? And Galatians 5, coming back to this verse, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love. And then the description of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Let us not become conceited or provoke one another or be jealous of one another. 
See, the Christian life is not something we can do on our own strength. It's by the Spirit. The Christian walk is something the Holy Spirit produces in us. So how do we know if we have nailed the passions and desires of our sinful nature to the cross and crucified them there and are instead living by the power of the Spirit? Well, agape love or unconditional love is not provoked. So here's a simple test for you. Our human nature or conditional love is provoked. So if someone tries to provoke me or someone does something to hurt me, and if I'm provoked, guess what? It's telling me that I'm living according to my flesh, my sinful nature. But if someone does something to me and I'm not provoked, then it tells me that I'm living by God's agape love. I'm living by the Spirit. The second one is love keeps no record of being wronged, but our human nature wants revenge. So if I'm wanting revenge, it means that I'm in the flesh, living according to my sinful nature. I will think about the wrong done against me and use it against the person in the future to get back at them. On the other hand, if I have truly forgiven them, I will never bring a wrong done against me up again and will choose not to dwell or think about it. This is what it means to be living by the Spirit or empowered by the Spirit. So if we're seeking revenge against people, even though we might be coming to church and reading our Bibles and stuff, if we're in our heart seeking revenge, then we're not living by God's Spirit. We're not empowered by the Spirit. We're not allowing the Spirit to produce these things in us. A couple more examples from 1 Corinthians 13. Love never gives up, but our human nature does give up on people. And love endures through every circumstance, meaning we keep on loving. Our human nature on the other hand, gives up and gives in to pride, conceit towards others, envy, anger, jealousy, impatience, bullying, a lack of self-control or unrestraint, unfaithfulness, restlessness, selfishness, despair, and cruelty. It's basically the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit, right? So living by the Spirit, living a life empowered by the Spirit, is God's will for all of us. We need to be willing to yield ourselves to Him Obey what the Holy Spirit teaches us through the Word of God, and so allow Him to change us, our character, into the image of Christ from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 3.18 We also need to recognize that we need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to love others the way Christ loves us. Remember we read that verse before? Jesus said to us, love others the way I have loved you. Well, that's kind of impossible, isn't it? So we need to recognize our dependency on God for the power and strength to live the life that he has called us to live. So does anyone here think that they can love others unconditionally, especially those who continue to hurt them on their own strength? Okay, because Paul didn't, and this is what Paul said. He said in 2 Corinthians 3.5, Not that we are fit, qualified, and sufficient in ability of ourselves, to form personal judgments or to claim or count anything as coming from us, but our power and ability and sufficiency are from God. So I just want to point out that this is where Moses is at. He's relying on the Lord. He's spending time with the Lord. He's dependent on the Lord. And that's what God wants for us too. So let's jump into Exodus chapter 33. i just read the first three verses. 
says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. And I will send my angel or an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hevite and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So, a couple of important things here. I will send my angel, some versions say an angel, and the fact is my is not there. It's just basically said, I will send angel before you. This is God saying, my presence will not go with you, will not be with you. He's saying that I'm going to give you what you want. You can have what you want. You can have the promises. You can go into the promised land, but I'm not going to be with you. This is a really sad place to be as a Christian. God is saying here that if he give them what they wanted, but his presence would not be with them, for I would not go up in your midst. So if there's one thing we should cling to, ask for, long for, and seek, it is the presence, the power, and the glory of God in our lives. And we're going to see that in this chapter. Without the presence of God in our lives, we'll be empty, unsatisfied, and unfulfilled. So any time that we are not in the will of God, we are out of God's presence. His power is not flowing through us. We are living without his power and agape love in our lives. We are doing things in our own strength. And it could be raising our own children, teaching a sermon, uh, washing the dishes, even singing to the Lord. We can be doing that in our own strength. To be in God's presence, we need to be submitted to him, giving up our will for his. And this is exactly what the people of Israel did. They repented and submitted, humbling themselves before God. So let's read verses 4 to 6. And when the people heard this bad news, so what was the bad news as a reminder? They couldn't go into the promised land? No. They could. They could have this beautiful land flowing with milk and honey. But what they're going to miss out on was the presence of God. So when the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now therefore take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. So, as I said before, God told us he would send an angel, not Jesus, the angel of God, but just an angel, to lead them into the promised land. They would have the fulfillment of prophecy, they would have the actualization of those promises, of living in the promised land, defeat of their enemies, all that kind of thing. And you know what? Sometimes our tendency today, and the tendency in the church, is to say, terrific, great, I get all of God's promises and his blessings, everything I want, my life is smooth and I have all my needs taken care of. And I think this is one of the greatest lies of the enemy, to do God's work without God's power and his presence, to replace true spiritual blessings with physical and emotional ones. This is a characteristic of the last day's church, the Laodicean church. Now, in this church, they think that they are rich and have need of nothing and that they can do it all by themselves, by their own energy. But in God's eyes, they are just the opposite. 
It says in Revelation 3.17, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered and grown wealthy, and I am in need of nothing. And you do not realize and understand that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So this church has lost the presence and the power of God, and it's really highlighted in the next couple of verses on, in verse 20. Jesus says to them, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. So Jesus is outside the church asking to come in, to have fellowship with them, to be present with them, to have his presence go with them. This verse is often used for a salvation thing. When you can apply it to that, but this is the primary meaning. This is the primary application. It's the church who's walked away from God, who's doing God's work without God's power. But to the credit of the children of Israel, even though they were in a state of carnality or worldliness, they mourned when they heard this. They didn't care about an angel. They were no longer excited about the promise of a better life without God's presence. It's like they were saying, this is terrible. We need God. We need his presence. So this is one aspect of true repentance when we are truly seeking God's presence or power in our lives so that we're living by the Spirit and not the flesh or sinful nature. So we can pray that God would help us to recognize when we are out of God's will so we can repent and live a life by the Holy Spirit, empowered or enabled by the Holy Spirit, allowing Him to produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. So verse 7, Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. So there's two tabernacles spoken of. The Hebrew word ohel, O-H-E-L, translated tabernacle here, is not the tabernacle that we've been talking about before with the, the bronze laver, the altar, the menorah, and all those bits and pieces. It's just the tent that Moses used to worship in. That's a different word. That's the Hebrew word mishkan. So the tabernacle spoken here is the meeting tent for the congregation. So Moses packs up the meeting tent and pitches it outside the camp. So this meeting tent was inside the camp, but now it's being packed up and taken outside the camp. So having heard the Lord declare that he would not be in the middle or the midst of the camp, it's as if Moses was saying, if God's not here, I don't want to be here either. I'm getting out of here. So, you and I desperately need times of pitching our tent outside the camp of busyness. That's one thing that can stop us. In order that we might be made aware of God's presence once again. And sometimes this takes some effort. Now, here's a little story to help us to picture this. A number of years ago, when my three kids were little, this is not me, I took them camping at Indian Mary Campground. As a single dad in those days, I was delighted that my college roommate Rick and his family joined us. But about five hours after we pitched our tents, a massive storm arose. Although we weathered it for a couple of days, staying in the tents and hanging out under whatever coverings we could find. Uh, Finally it got so wet we packed up everything and all headed home. On my way back to Jacksonville, the kids and I stopped at McDonald's 
and as they played on the playground equipment, the sun popped through. It was at that moment that I realised that, although we'd been camping for a couple of days, I missed my objective totally, which was to focus on my kids. We adults were playing games and enjoying fellowship, but I didn't accomplish what I had initially set out to do, which is reach out to these kids. So I loaded the kids back in the car, we went back to Indian Mary, re-pitched the tent, hung out all the wet stuff, and we shared some of the best four days we ever spent together. So that's a picture of a dad trying to get some time with his kids, trying to get away from the hustle and bustle of life and just spend some good time with his kids. Now the same is true in our walk with the Lord. Sometimes you'll have devotions of Bible study and only to realize that a storm has blown through. It's disrupted you. You've been distracted and you've lost focus. But if you don't give up, if you repitch your tent, if you change your location and say, Lord, I really need to be in your presence, just as we'll see him do with Moses, God will meet you there. So verse 8 in Exodus 33. So it was, whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, that all the people rose, each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass, when Moses entered the tabernacle, that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped each man in his tent door. So the people watched as Moses re-pitched his tent out there beyond the camp, the tent of meeting, and as the cloudy pillar, which symbolized God's presence, descended upon the door of this tent. So they watched the cloud. They were intrigued by the presence of God. They bowed down. But they remained in their own tents. And it's just as people can be intrigued by spiritual life, they can read books about spiritual life, dialogue and write in their journals about spiritual life, have emotional experiences even, but they still do not budge from their own tents. And that's basically the entire nation of Israel. All the children of Israel, except two, stayed in their tents. Now the exception was Joshua. So Moses would go to the tent and fellowship with God and then come back to the camp. But Joshua, he didn't. He stayed. And verse 11, So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. Now, if you remember a previous verse, it says anyone could go out. It says anyone was allowed to go out to the tent of meeting. But no one chose to do so. No one wanted to go take that step in being in God's presence. But Joshua did. And once he got there, he couldn't pull himself away. Isn't that cool? He didn't leave. He just stayed there. And no wonder he is the man that God used to bring all the people into the land of promise. And the application here is every one of us is as close to God as we choose to be. We make a choice. Are we going to choose to go and be in God's presence and have his power in us and live by the Holy Spirit or live by the flesh, the sinful nature. So God will gladly and readily take you and me as far as we want to go, but he won't take us one step further than we desire. So verse 12, Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. That's a beautiful phrase. And you also 
have found grace in my sight. Now therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you and that I might find grace in your sight. So if I have found grace in your sight, so Moses was bold in drawing near to God, but he based his boldness on the grace that God had already shown him. And this is a good reason for drawing near. So he just flick over to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. So it's only by his grace, by his unmerited, undeserved favour, power and love given to us that we can approach God. There is no other way. Like Moses, we need to boldly approach God humbly. And it sounds like an oxymoron there, doesn't it? We need to boldly come humbly. But that's true. We need to boldly come, that means without fear. Humbly, we come understanding it's by grace. We don't deserve it. So we could say something like this. I come to God saying, I know and understand that I don't deserve anything good you give to me. In fact, I deserve judgment because of my many sins. But I know that you love me and delight in helping me. I know that I have found grace in your sight. So, this is what I need, God. We come boldly but humbly to the throne of grace. And this is what Moses is saying. If I have found grace in your sight, then, obviously, you want to bless me. Continuing in verse 13, And consider that this nation is your people. And he, God, said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. So was it because of the holiness, devotion, or piety of the people that God promised his presence would go with them and give them rest? No. (laughs) It's all grace, isn't it? Just one chapter, last chapter, they were caught up in idolatry and immorality and then dancing around the golden calf. And now God is declaring that his presence would go with them and give rest to them, not because they're worthy, but because they had a mediator or an intercessor named Moses who stood between their sin and God's holiness and appealed to God's grace, God's unmerited favor towards us. Sin requires judgment, but in Moses, God found a way to bless his people rather than judge them. Pretty cool, eh? That's what a mediator does. God is a gracious God. Moses appealed to God's grace, and the same is true for us today. We have a greater than Moses mediating for us even today. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So this picture here of Moses mediating for the people of Israel, it's a picture of what Jesus is doing for us. He's mediating for us. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So like the children of Israel, We drop the ball, we fall short, we mess up constantly. But like them, we experience the presence of God because we too have a mediator. We have Jesus. Now, as a result, the children of Israel were given direction by God. Deuteronomy 133. 
We are given direction by God who will go in the way before you to search out a place to pitch your tents. And a paraphrase of Joshua 3, 3 and 4. As the people were preparing to enter the promised land, they were to follow the Ark of the Covenant. It's about half a mile between them and the Ark. In commanding this, it's as if God was saying, Give me space. I'm going ahead of you to prepare the place for you and to prepare you for the place to which I'm leading you. So God has promised direction for us and we need to give him space to work, give him time, be patient. So not only does he give us direction, but he also gives us protection. He goes before us and he goes behind us. And this is a a verse that talks about when they're about to cross the Red Sea. Exodus 14, 19 and 20. And the angel of God, who went before the camp of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud and darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other, so that one did not come near the other all that night. We need, or God gives us his protection. And we might make some bad decisions. We might not hear God's voice clearly or discern his will properly. But even so, God still goes before us and he still places himself between us and our enemies who are trying to pursue us. He's got our backs covered. Now, thirdly, in addition to receiving direction and protection, we are given satisfaction by God. We are told that Moses fasted two and perhaps three times for 40 days on Mount Sinai. Do you think that Moses was going, oh man, I'm really hungry? This fasting is really making me weak? I don't think so. I just think that maybe he forgot to eat because he's in God's presence. He's got everything he needs. He's in the physical presence of God. He doesn't need to eat. And when we are in the presence of the Lord, we find such satisfaction that we too begin to lose our appetite for the fleshly stuff, which is otherwise attractive to us. So we're not in the presence of God. We think about the fleshly stuff. But in the presence of God, we don't need that stuff anymore. So direction, protection, and satisfaction. All the blessings of the Lord's presence and all by grace through faith. So verse 15. Then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. So Moses is saying, Lord, it's not just about your presence being with me, it's about your presence being with us. The people, all the people. So the result of Moses spending time with the Lord on the mountain and in the tent of meeting outside the camp was that he not only had a passionate heart for God, but an incredible passion for God's people. He wanted others to experience God's presence with him. That's what we should be doing too, encouraging others to walk close to the Lord. Verse 16 and 17. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. So what's the main thing that makes God's people separate? It's God's presence, God's power working in us. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. Again. It's not God is being forced or compelled. Grace is unmerited favor. I imagine a smile on God's face as he says, Okay, Moses, I'll do what you ask. I'll not only go with you personally, but with a whole nation corporately. 
if God the Father responds to Moses' intercession on behalf of the children of Israel, how much more will the Father give ear to his son's intercession on our behalf? And verse 18, and he said, please show me your glory. It's a fantastic thing to pray. Scary thing to pray. So the Hebrew word translated glory is chabod, which speaks of weight and substance. Something that people say, I don't know if it's true or not, but it's interesting. Uh, some say that the chabod or glory is what clothed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But when they sinned, the chabod or glory departed and they became aware of their emptiness. And man has been aware of the weightlessness, shallowness and nakedness in his soul ever since. And another application for this from Wisby. The true servant of God is concerned more about the glory of God than about anything else. Moses and the Jews had seen God's glory in the pillar of cloud and fire, as well as in the storm on Mount Sinai. But Moses wanted to see the intimate glory of God revealed to him personally. God did give Moses a guarded glimpse of his glory and he was satisfied. When God's servants are discouraged and disappointed because of the sins of their people, the best remedy for a broken heart is a new vision of the glory of God. Isn't that cool? The best remedy for a broken heart is a new vision of the glory of God. You might feel broken down at the moment, weak. Get a vision of the glory of God. Ask God for one. 19. Then he said, I will make my goodness pass before you. So Moses had asked, let me see your glory. And God says, I will make my goodness pass before you. So God's goodness and his glory are linked because the glory of God is good. God is good. God is glorious. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. So the name of the Lord is equivalent to his nature, his essence, or his character. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, has declared him. So this is talking about God the Father. Okay. No one has seen God the Father at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So when people in Scripture had an encounter with God, as Abraham did in Genesis 18 and Isaiah in Isaiah 6, they were seeing Jesus, not the Father, a theophany. There's a reason for this. And the Lord said, Here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock, and so it shall be, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So, these verses give us a picture of how man can live in the presence of God. Sinful man can live in the presence of God. Created in God's image, man was made for face-to-face communication with God, to share his glory as his son and, and daughters. But sin has made this impossible. But through this experience, God is showing all men the way he has provided for man to spiritually enter and dwell in the goodness of God's presence and glory without facing judgment. And we're going to come back to this type of picture next week because it ties in a whole lot of 
things about the pictures and types of Jesus that we've already looked at. So, so to conclude for today, let's remember that the motivation to serve God that both Paul and Moses had, and we should have as well, is found here in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. Either way, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. And the Amplified Version says, same verses, For the love of Christ controls and urges and impels us. It just it expands that thought of controls, but it urges, it motivates, it compels. Because we are of the opinion and conviction that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, so that all those who live might live no longer to and for themselves, but to him and for him who died and was raised again for their sake. So remember, Jesus did it for us, not for himself. We live our lives for others, not for ourselves. So we are either living for ourselves, doing things for our own sakes, loving ourselves, or we are living for Jesus, doing things for his sake, loving him. This is our motive, and we can ask ourselves, what is my motive? I'd like to finish with a verse and a poem. 1 Corinthians 3, 12-15 Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay or straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work, of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So our motive for serving is really important. Why? Because it's only those things that we do in faith and motivated by God's selfless agape love, which represented here by the gold, the silver and the precious stones, those things will be rewarded. Anything not done in faith and not motivated by God's agape life will burn. And that's represented by the wood, the hay, and the stubble. And there's this really awesome poem from C.T. Studd, which I'll finish with. It says, Two little lines I heard one day, Travelling along life's busy way, Bringing conviction to my heart, And from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then, in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life, which will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice. Bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life which will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears. Each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life which will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, 
when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life which will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep, in joy or sorrow thy word to keep, faithful and true whatever the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life, only one life which will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. O let my love with fervour burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life which will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, twas worth it all. Only one life shall soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be, if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. Only one life which will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Father, thank you, Lord, for the example of Moses as someone who's surrendered to you, who's submitted to you, who's dependent on you, and your love is just pouring out of him. And also just thank you for the picture of Moses as a mediator. Lord, mediating on the basis of your grace. Lord, we don't deserve anything, but Lord, you just love to help us because that's who you are. You're gracious. And so we come boldly but humbly, boldly without fear, and humbly understanding it's by grace. We don't deserve any of it, but you love to help us. You want to help us. So help us to have the understanding, Lord. And help us to be mediators too. Help us to be intercessors, praying for other people and having a concern for other people and praying for them to come to the kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.